A Minor Chorus, the debut novel by celebrated poet Billy Ray Belcourt, poses a question and offers one possible and hugely compelling response. The question might be expressed as follows. What good are conventional forms of writing, whether academic dissertations or literary novels, to those who have conventionally been written out of the narrative? In this case, the writer is a young, queer, indigenous academic, originally from a Cree reservation in northern Alberta, but, when we meet him, living a somewhat disillusioned big city campus life. And the response to the question? Well, that's a minor chorus itself. A novel as dissertation, or perhaps dissertation as novel, or perhaps neither. We follow our narrator back to the reservation on his quest to speak to people there about their lives, their desires, their pain and their memories, and to test his thesis that, quote, people turned into musical instruments when encouraged to testify about the conditions of their lives. A Minor Chorus is an extraordinary original and thought-provoking debut, and I'm delighted to say that Billy Ray Belcourt joins me to discuss it today. Billy Ray, welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Thank you for having me. There's so much I want to talk about uh, in this novel that I was actually having a little bit of difficulty deciding what would be um, would be our route in. Um, it struck me that the narrator is unnamed, um, which always when you uh, when you get an unnamed narrator uh, as, as a reader, you start posing questions about who exactly um, the narrator is is representing. And I think particularly in in this case, because, as I said in the introduction, there is a, some sort of permeability between or, or some sort of doubt, I suppose, about what exactly this document is that we're holding when we're when we're reading it. Is it this dissertation as novel? Is it this novel as dissertation? Is it something else um, entirely? So I suppose what I would like to begin with is by asking you how you see this novel. Do you consider it as fitting broadly into the sort of genre of what might be called autofiction, as represented by perhaps people like uh, Edouard Louis or Carlo Knausgaard? Or do you see it as being as something different from that? Firstly, about the narrator being unnamed, I'll say quickly that whenever I'm asked a question like that, I think about this tweet I saw. I can't remember by who, another poet, who said something like, we need to stop the unnamed narrator industrial complex. <laughs> and I don't know if it amounts to an industrial complex, but it did made me did make me pause to think about what kind of cultural investments might inhere mm. in the unnamed narrator in the 21st century. That I think, of course, my novel plays out some of those conventions mm -hmm. with a great deal of anxiety, not wanting to reify them to his own detriment. And then by extension, the author not wanting to reify mm. those things to my detriment. But on the note of genre, I will say I was thinking I had, I do read a lot of work in the mode of autofiction and I just happened to be reading a profile of the uh, Norwegian writer of Vigdis um, Hjorth. I don't know if I'm saying her last name correctly. Mm. Um, I can't confirm but, or deny, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> My apologies if I did pronounce it incorrectly. But you know, I'm a, a really a, a big admirer of her work. And there was this pro profile that made reference to the, Nor the Norwegian term uh, that mm -hmm. I think loosely translates to reality fiction, mm. which to me holds more resonance than simply autofiction because of the the dangers and the trapdoor of that prefix. Um, mm. Yeah, I think um, what I was put in mind of when um, when trying to kind of and I don't I don't like to say much as kind of classify a novel, but obviously when when you're going to be talking to the writer about it, you have to come to sort of some framework of understanding, I guess, was uh, several years ago when interviewing Rachel Cusk, who actually is mentioned a few times in this book, um, is that she, 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 on the subject of autofiction, she was saying that, you know, she uh, felt that a lot of writers met a certain obstacle in the road. And certain writers, like, for example, Carlo V. Knausgaard, another Norwegian, went around it one way, and she 
took another route around the same obstacle. And I was wondering if maybe that's in a sense partly what a minor chorus was doing, was finding yet another route around uh, a potential obstacle. And that obstacle being perhaps what what form of writing is uh, is suitable for the moment that we're living and, you know, whether as a society or as particular individuals within that society. Exactly. And the protagonist is contending with the constraints of academic writing. And then mm. he opens himself to the novel, which brings with it different kinds of constraints. And I actually hadn't thought about the question of the dissertation until just now when you brought it up, mm. because I do think that the the novel is also a kind of dissertation. Mm. I hadn't realized that when I was writing it, but of course it is because it's bringing a, a similar analytical mode to mm. a set of questions. And really there's a thesis statement <laughs> that sort of, mm -hmm courses throughout the book about the relationship between happiness and art making in our particular moment that a queer indigenous person who wants to make art has to tackle. Otherwise, there's the risk of becoming crushed by those. Mm -hmm. There does seem to be um, an interesting tension in um the protagonist and, and thank you for giving me that term because i wasn't sure whether to say the narrator or a writer or the protagonist so let's uh, let's let's stick with that um this tension between feeling i suppose the the limitations of the academic world and academic language but also feeling very steeped in that language and in that world and indeed there is a moment where uh, he reflects the sort of uh, this is when after, you know, later on in the book, when he's back at the reservation, that having been through this academic process, he is able to see the world in different in, in different ways to people who had lived their entire lives on uh, on the reservation. And it, it really felt to me that this was a, a tension that was just not underway just with our protagonist, but actually for you in the writing of this book. Mm hmm. So I'll speak autobiographically for a moment and mm -hmm, sure. sort of uh, illuminate the context of the novel's construction. So I was in my own grad program. I had finished coursework and I had mostly written my own dissertation. Mm -hmm. And then I had nothing to do. I was also in this period of period of depression that made some simple tasks of living arduous right uh, and maybe like paradoxically i turn to the novel which is in no way less arduous <laughs> than simple <laughs> tasks of living um but uh the the writing myself and a character who who represents someone like me into the landscape of the novel, um, a landscape that has its own cruelties and violences, mm -hmm. but that also has these kernels of radical possibility. Mm -hmm. you know, to, to gesture to another thinker who I often think with, Jose Esteban Munoz. Mm -hmm. um, and I was sort of transfixed by those kernels a possibility and I could see them in some other contemporary novels where um, the, the, the question of the political doesn't have to be suppressed in the interest of say plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And, and, and at the same time, there is this sort of sense of uh, the novel sort of traditionally has been thought of as almost a bourgeois form in a sense, or like the, the ultimate bourgeois form because of its, its, I guess, its sort of expansive space, because of its, uh, at least its traditional concerns um, that I think often the argument might have been made that where the kind of the, the radical insight might be uh, possible would more in the kind of the, the academic writing in this sort of, um, I guess, sort of uh, quest to 
to in some ways sort of expose certain structures and to expose the kind of structures which underlie the the novel itself. So do you get the sense that the in some way there has been sort of the pendulum has perhaps tipped back towards the novel as a radical form in, in recent years? I will say that there doesn't seem to be much public discourse about the possible uh, uh, subversiveness of the dissertation. <laughs> so, so, so there's, there's that. Um, but I, I, I hold out hope that mm-hmm. one can produce a novel that doesn't become immediately conscripted into that bourgeois tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, I was keenly aware of the the fetishization of the individual that the novel sort of brings into mm-hmm. cultural life at the moment of its inception. And you know, to go back to Rachel Cusk, I kept thinking about something she said about character in that she doesn't think it exists because, you know, we we in the real world, we don't even bear something like character and that mm-hmm. it would be a, a misrepresentation of living. And um, the question of representation is especially fraught when it comes mm-hmm. to indigenous people right. in North America. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, with this novel, I don't want to invite the kind of vampiric or fetishistic curiosities of indigenous character, so mm-hmm. to speak, um, but rather offer up uh, an individual life that is always already communal. And to go mm-hmm. back to your previous question, which I sort of lost slightly about um the, the protagonist's observation that those in Northern Alberta are living historical lives, though they mm-hmm. don't necessarily have the critical tools to understand their lives in that way, mm-hmm. that I hoped I could use some of the conventions of the novel to, to grant them that, mm-hmm. that power. Mm-hmm. I think what it shows as well, um, and we'll come on to speak about some of the um, the characters that the protagonist talks to and interviews um, as we go on. But I think I think one thing that comes across very clearly is that while on the on the face of it, uh, we might immediately assume that there is a sort of a greater sophistication to the the academic discourse. The more time we spend with these characters, we realize actually. In a sense, the academic discourse has this kind of superficial sophistication, and it's not that it allows necessarily for more complexity of thought, but it just has its own way of expressing that complexity of thought, which is equally existent and equally powerful in this. Uh, uh, so I don't want to say procession, but in these this cast of characters that we mm-hmm. that we meet. There are different kinds of discourse operating in the various spaces that the protagonist moves through from the academia, you know, from the academy Mm -hmm. to the reserve. Um, And, and that meant that I had to perform this kind of balancing act to allow for those multiple and sometimes competing Mm -hmm. discourses to exist in the same frame. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it is it is a sort of there is a real fascinating contrast, I think, between, for example, the because I I guess, in a sense, our protagonist, while being steeped in the academic discourse, um, also adapts to his environment, as we all do, I think, like we notice the, the way we are with our friends, with our colleagues, is different to how we speak to our family or or concerning friends, depending on when we met them in our lives, we speak to them uh, in different ways. But when we when we set again, so uh, the protagonist has this friend, uh, River, uh, at, the, at the university, and the conversations that they have compared to the conversations that uh, he then goes on to have with, uh, with his aunt and with uh, some of the other people he meets are just, they have to, nothing to do with each other superficially. The sort of the language is completely removed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of something that the cultural theorist Anne Spekovich has said in her book, Depression, which is that you know, knowing that capitalism and colonialism 
are the problems doesn't necessarily make us feel better or want to get out of bed in the morning. And so the protagonist has this critical language through which he can diagnose and sometimes even psychoanalyze his own suffering, but that does not actually lead him through it. And I think mm. he he needs this other modality of language that the cast of characters represents in order to not be be ruined. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, I guess, the the sort of the geographical transition that our, our, our character goes through, because I, I suspect, I mean, it was certainly my case and I've done a little bit of uh, reading around it in preparation for this interview, but was sort of, I was quite unfamiliar with the the territory of of northern Alberta and the kind of the the landscape of, uh, from which our, our protagonist, well, where he grew up and then you know where he's going back to uh, in the in the in the course of this novel. So, would you just be able to sort of give us a little bit of a, a sort of geographical, sort of topological, and perhaps a cultural introduction to to the uh, the the home of, of our protagonist? Yeah, there's a paragraph in the novel that I think I should read from because it does exactly this. Okay. This is what I knew about where I come from. It's a place where history begins and ends. Before it was part of Alberta, it was the district of Athabasca. And before that, it didn't have an English name. It's the homeland of the Cree and Dene and Métis, and for centuries my ancestors lived in harmony with the land and water and forests and animals. At the close of one century and the start of another, those from whom I descend signed a treaty near the shores of the lake around which many reserves are now located, including my own. They signed in the spirit of communality and peace, and in the name of future generations, though what followed was an era defined by a systematic assault on indigenous livability, death schools, open air prisons, child abductions. Many sick experiments were carried out by the federal government and its henchmen from which we're still recovering, though recovery isn't always an option. All the while people resisted loudly and quietly, but always creatively. Hmm. And topographically speaking, Northern Alberta, at least the area in which the novel takes place, is categorized both as prairie and subarctic. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's some other secret third thing. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it is also boreal forest. And the image of the boreal forest comes up a lot in the novel because perhaps like all forests, it's this place where we deposit symbolic meaning. And mm. I think for the protagonist, the boreal forest represents the fundamental unknowability of his own landscape of mm -hmm. childhood. Mm. Because that is definitely the um, the sense we get when 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 he goes back there. Is this? It's it's odd because it is both familiar, but as you say, unknowable because of the um, the the violence that has been carried out on his people for generation after generation. The way their their history has been essentially torn from them and destroyed and corrupted and and sort of twisted by. Uh, by the colonizing forces, there is both this sense when he steps into this world that he is both at home and in some way a little bit lost. Exactly. And he keeps thinking as he's making the trek north that he keeps thinking of all everything representing something historical. Mm. And so he reflects shortly after that paragraph I read that along the lake, there there was this pattern. There would be a reserve and then a hamlet predominantly uh, of white people, then another reserve mm -hmm. and another hamlet and so on and so forth. And he says that that seems to only be possible in some colonizers' imagination. 
And then he realizes that, you know, that probably was the case and that that was what happened. And so he has to sort of um, accept the the consciousness raising process that he's still going through that mm-hmm. he didn't get to go through as a child or in adolescence, because that's part of the function of the structure of colonialism to keep us mm-hmm. unaware of our own political existence. Mm. And, and part of the way that that's sort of manifest in him itself is through is through language. So the the language which with which he's operating, you know, certainly within a novel, is English. So it's the kind of it's the colonizing language. Yeah. And um, forgive my ignorance here. Is there a sort of an existed Cree language which is still spoken in Cree communities, which he can move between? Yes, and so. Um, I don't speak Cree. I know it in mm-hmm. bits and pieces, so I couldn't imagine a, a character who of sort of a certain generation who would. But mm-hmm. growing up, it was everywhere, and it's still uh-huh. you know operative. And the Cree nation is actually quite vast. It it, it mm-hmm. covers a large amount of territory. But I always think of something the poet Somaz, Somaz Sharif said at, in during mm-hmm. a Q and A that I saw on a video. <laughs> But anyway, she said, <laughs> she said that, you know, English is the language of her dispossession. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. rings so truly for me and for Indigenous people more generally. And now I think that when I write, I'm writing in a second language. Because right. I, I, yeah. I, don't ha- I don't have a first language. Mm-hmm. And already that positions me yes. in a specific way to, to make certain compromises. Yeah, and and leads, I suppose, to quite a a deep sense of alienation in the in the subject matter. Like, I, I, when how how to write about the the experience of colonization if you only, in a sense, have the tools of the colonizer at your disposal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to to speak English already suggests a certain state of affairs in mm-hmm. the colonial world where mm-hmm. we're we as indigenous people are are playing a losing game mm-hmm. we we also sense this um i suppose quite strange um change in in his identity as he as he moves across the landscape um which make i mean certainly came as a bit of a surprise to me which was even though he's essentially going back to a reservation the cree homeland i felt there was more physical danger to him in that space than in, I suppose, the uh, modern anonymous uh, city context or campus context where we where we find him at the beginning. So even though he's going home, suddenly he's confronted with these, um, I suppose, the what you might call the, the front lines of the of the battle between uh, colonizer and colonized. Exactly. And perhaps one of the moments you're thinking of is when the character visits what's left of a residential school. And I'll just say for for listeners who may not know that Canada had a system called uh, the Indian residential school system Mm -hmm. in which, you know, thousands and thousands of Indigenous children were taken from their communities and put into schools in order to um, sort of subjugate them to various religious ideologies and also to the emergent settler mm-hmm. way of living. So this you know, incredible act of genocide um, carried out throughout most of the 20th century. And so the, the, the protagonist visits this place because he has family who had gone there and he so keeps tracing back these things that are happening to residential schools. And anyways, there's a character, there's a, a character that emerges there, and a, a sort of a confrontation ensues, mm. and the the threat of police power is made visible. And I wanted that chapter to illuminate precisely what what you're you know uh, observing, Adam, which is that there is this active front line where where people are still having to make decisions about how they live and mm-hmm. whether or not they subject themselves to further danger as indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And indeed, one of the one of the people who experiences that um, 
very much firsthand, even though the uh, the physical danger itself is more experienced by 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 her son Jack is Mary, so one of the 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 first people um, that our protagonist uh, speaks to and starts to and starts to get you know she's I guess one of the the first uh, voices in the chorus that we um, that, that 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 you're building here and so well perhaps you could introduce our listeners a little bit to uh, to Mary and what she means to the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So Mary is a, a relative of the protagonists who uh, he's estranged from slightly, but has a history with that allows him to 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 exceed that estrangement in a way that I think a lot of Native families uh, do. You can always sort of enter back into that mode of kinship. Mm-hmm. And she is uh, uh, the grandmother of another character in her book, Jack, who uh, it, it, we learn in, in that conversation is currently being held in a in a correctional facility in the city from which the character the protagonist just uh, drove. And Mary is is trying to defend Jack, and that's how the protagonist thinks of it as a, a sort of a defense of life of indigenous mm-hmm. life, and and she, you know she's she's again, losing that fight because he did get arrested. And I think she she represents in the novel the, the incredibly ordinary ways that ordinary Indigenous people co- confront the vastness of history and have mm-hmm. to decide um, in the face of that vastness to nonetheless keep living. Mm-hmm. And I think she also uh, seems to symbolize alongside with Jack, I guess, the the what one might call the catch 22 of a lot of uh, indigenous life, at least as how we how we perceive it in this novel. Whereas so, you know, as we get to know Jack's story and as we discover how he ended up in in prison, I mean, you know, for without without going into too much spoiling it for our readers, like, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was some, something involving a drug possession and you know this but the 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 sort of one thing that becomes kind of agonizingly clear as we read it is the almost the complete lack of maneuverability that jack had Mm -hmm. to get to that point that sort of the the structures in which he found himself that were being put on him by the by the way that the police interacted with indigenous people almost made this outcome inevitable in fact Mm -hmm. which seems counterintuitive for a novel where right. know, the outcome is already predetermined but mm. you know i wanted to show the 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 intensity of systems of incarceration mm-hmm. in northern alberta so uh, listeners might also not know that in canada indigenous people are incredibly overrepresented in the carceral system Mm -hmm. and in some regions make up as much as 90% of the prison Mm -hmm. population. Wow. And even to describe it as uh, an experience of over-representation might actually Mm -hmm. uh, obfuscate the intention of the system to do that. Mm And the, the police begin in Canada or emerge in Canada in response to Indigenous resistance in the prairies to settlement. And so right. there's this long history of police power that Jack is a part of. And so um, the kinds of agency he can practice are incredibly limited. And that's not to say that he doesn't have agency, but that uh, uh, sometimes structural forces are so embedded in everyday Mm -hmm. life that uh, uh, our decisions can be made for us. A memory. All week, I'd been trying to remember someone who was still alive. 
to die is to recede from the present. So in a way, I thought Jack had been living out a kind of social death. I wanted there to be a word for when history dictates that we stand in the middle of paradox like a doorway and not budge. Today, language was the sky falling onto me. Language was also something that hadn't been invented yet. The summer Jack and I were 13, we both worked on the res as seasonal student laborers. Mostly we mowed grass, added new coats of paint to various buildings and helped with construction projects. It was the only economic opportunity available to us. After one shift, a number of us decided to drive our quads into the forest to hang out at a secluded stretch of river as close to a private oasis as we could get. What was most important about the river was that it somehow felt untouched by the world. For a few hours, we lived in the magnificence of this feeling. As indigenous youth, we were experts at doing so. We slept in the sun and played volleyball on the sandy embankment and Jack and one of our coworkers made out in the water and we let the unboundedness of their passion free us a little. Eventually, the others left, and it was just Jack and me amidst the trembling poplars. Without prompt, he said, you know, I don't think I'll ever leave here. I don't think there's anywhere nearly this beautiful. On, on that subject of prison as well, there's a moment where um, you describe the the system of of the reservations, the way it was the way it was constructed, as being essentially an, an open air prison. It's like mm-hmm. the it's like the way that the uh, uh, like the prisons have almost been turned inside out in a way. And so there's a people are technically free, but are sort of incarcerated in these uh, in these spaces and within these structures. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been thinking more again in newer writing about the history of the reserve as an open air prison because you know there there were moments in history where indigenous peoples could not leave the reserve without permission mm-hmm. from the indian agent government henchmen who were appointed to yeah. securitize reserves and uh i i, I happened to stumble upon this document on twitter one day that this describing uh, an Indian agent seizing control of a family's children. Mm-hmm. And that and that document was from Driftpile, which is my reserve. And I saw the last name of the Indian agent and was floored because, of course, that last name is still existent in the, in the mm-hmm. region. And my my grandfather, even you know, who's a mechanic, sort of uh, works with one of the descendants of of this Indian agent, and so there's this line of historical continuity mm. that I'm a part of, and that so many people in the region are a part of, and which is to bring into focus, I think the um the the way that we're still living out the afterlife of mm-hmm. the reserve as the open air prison yeah 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 our narrator of course as i mentioned in the introduction sits on at the intersection i guess of several identities um and one of them is as a as a gay man as a queer man and when he goes back to the reservation again this is something which in his interactions at the beginning of the novel when he's in the city when he's on campus you know it's not that they are uncomplicated but uh they seem to an extent that anything like this can be resolved in some way yeah in some way resolved in some way understood and in some way to have found their place um this sense dissipates um on the reservation and I, th- I, th- I thought that was one of the most one of the most touching moments of the book is when he's talking to um to michael 
uh, about the sort of so this Michael is an is an older gay man that uh, the protagonist knew um, as uh, you know when he when he was growing up, and just just seeing how you know we were talking about uh, prisons earlier and seeing like how how Michael sort of generationally was essentially forced to live in the what might be considered the prison of his own sexuality mm-hmm. uh, in a way that our that our narrator isn't. Mm-hmm. So Michael's actually the first character I envisioned when I started writing the mm. book. And I envisioned him as as a gay man who had never come out and who wasn't capable of doing so. Partly because of the violence of sexual norms and heteronormativity in a place like Northern Alberta, but also because of the rigidity of of norms around gender and sex in you know for that generation mm-hmm. um and i was interested not in asking readers to pity someone like mm-hmm. him but rather to grapple with as you say the way that that we make little prisons of our own lives and mm-hmm. that that is not any individual's fault but a symptom of a society that um, um, ne- neglects its own population hmm. because that that is the thing it's interesting you say you didn't want people to pity him because uh the the sort of the overwhelming feeling i had when reading about michael was certainly not pity but this sort of this sense of affection and I guess sort of this weird understanding of you know how he had made these compromises I guess in the you know he had compromised his desires he had compromised his 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 nature but he had at the same time found something of a balance something of a of a, of a sense of, of resolution in the I suppose the the quiet uh, nature of the life that he that he lived. Mm-hmm. He says something like, "Every morning I start over," mm. and I I think he needs that kind of philosophical maxim in order to survive his his own life. And I I think that we all end up you know, coming up with mm-hmm. our own philosophical ma- maxims to survive our lives, and. Uh, and again, the question of agency comes up, and it's it's you know incredibly constrained agency, but it is there all the same. Mm-hmm. And then another um, another one of the people we spend time with is um, Graham. So this is somebody that um, uh, the protagonist meets on um, on a dating app. And actually, before we before we come on to talk about Graham, I'd like to to speak a little bit about the the presence of technology and whether it be, you know, Grindr or Twitter uh, makes us a few sort of appearances. And, and because there's this, I find it, I suppose, an interesting sort of uh, generational question in a way that uh, our protagonist is very politically uh, active, very politically aware, very much, I suppose, I mean, it would be it's, it's an oversimplification to say kind of of the of the radical left, but I think there's definitely, you know, that that side to mm-hmm. to his, his character, and yet whether we talk about him or River at the start, they they are enmeshed in these uh, products like Twitter, like Grinder, which are sort of I guess products of the that sort of epitomize the what I don't know what you would call it sort of techno capitalism uh of the of the early 21st century and yet one thing I didn't feel and as I say maybe this is a generational thing because he is in his early 20s I think mm-hmm. and I'm in my early 40s so maybe this is just something which is a kind of uh, something where I'm just gonna have to hold up my hands and say that I don't <laughs> understand but I, I didn't feel that was one area where I guess I didn't feel the the political tension in the way that I did around the way people speak or the way people interact or the way that you know they uh, come into contact with other let's say structures of of society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I like this question because you're right in saying that the protagonist doesn't problematize 
these mm-hmm. uh, uh, technologies of uh, social life. The way that the protagonist keeps in touch with River, who's a friend that we meet at the start of the novel, is through texting and through Facebook messaging. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, that was partly my own experience of queer friendship mm-hmm. uh, that we 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 keep in touch through text messages and you know that sending a little text message is actually you know part of how one how one uh, uh, endures <laughs> mm-hmm. but the, and there's perhaps a kind of starkness to the contrast between these technologies of social life and the the political norms of northern alberta that again represents the the false binaries mm-hmm. that can come to feel real and inevitable Mm-hmm. And perhaps yet again, that's my protagonist uh, uh, confronting that that boundary and and either ignoring it or or purposefully trying to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because um, you put me in mind of an event we had back at the bookstore. Well, years ago, <laughs> years ago now, pre-pandemic, um, with the. Uh, editor, writer, John Freeman. And we were talking about uh, the internet and we were talking about these kind of tools. And um, I think probably, admittedly, I, you know, we're both men of a certain age, speaking about them in, in a, with a certain negative light. And I remember a young woman uh, in the audience uh, said that, you know, as a, um, as a young woman of colour and as uh, a woman of a sort of like a fluid sexuality, you know, we were not acknowledging the 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 space and the the freedom that these uh these tools had afforded her and afforded uh, people like her and and that really struck me that yeah absolutely we we hadn't been acknowledging that and yet i was speaking to a a, a friend who was present at the um at the, at the reading and she had grown up um she was a similar age to me and she'd grown up with the kind of the lesbian chat rooms of the early 90s and it, it, it struck me that it was quite sad in a way that a lot of that way of interacting, which was in a sense unmediated by mm-hmm. uh, these kind of huge conglomerates, had kind of faded away to an extent. And that, you know, the the means of communication had become Twitter and Facebook and, uh, you know, and these kind of these, I, I, I suppose, kind of monoliths rather than the sort of a lot of the sort of interesting stuff that was maybe going on at the fringes back uh, back in the early days of the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to believe in the existence of something like a queer life world, but mm-hmm. again, to 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 just build from what you're saying, I, you know, there's so many ways that uh, queer queer publics are circumscribed. I think even mm-hmm. of, you know, to, to go back to Grinder, that I remember, you know, the, the CEO or whatever, you know, came out against gay marriage in the US. Right. It just, okay. which just seems, you know, it just doesn't make <laughs> sense. Um, and, and so it's, it, again, it's like profit, capital, these things, mm. you know, bearing down, uh, you know, on us, even in the in the ways that we uh, perform our sexuality, and mm-hmm. you know, you know, Grinder is just such this you know hotbed of of um, of ideology, and to the you know to the the degree that I wouldn't classify it as any kind of radical space, and mm-hmm. um, I think sort of that we see glimmers of that experience in the novel but mm. there's this moment too where the protagonist uh, logs back on to grinder and sees that you know graham is now hundreds of kilometers away and he you know and he says that he 
measures his loneliness in kilometers be- yes. because because of that uh, and, and and really the the book is also about loneliness and mm. the the inability to connect uh both in terms of his indigeneity and his queerness and in a way these available technologies uh, either barely make his loneliness more survivable mm-hmm. or they further contribute to it yeah 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 i'd like to i'd like to pick up on that point actually about about his loneliness because um and i suppose in a sense connect it to um the title of the book and the protagonist's kind of expectations of his trip compared to 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 what he finds there because i think when he sets off we get a sense of like he's uh he's looking for something sort of i guess transcendent in a way there's something that will will dramatically lift him out of the sort of the mental emotional intellectual space that he he found himself and put him on a in a different space or on a different level and that doesn't happen. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that. But what does happen, and I think this is why it connects it with the title, which in a way is perhaps is more true to life, and I think it, in in many senses perhaps more more beautiful, is that he finds these little glimmers of connection with um, with each of the pers- each of the people that he meets, each of the people that he speaks to, and and none of them give him this kind of transformative experience which you know was spins him 180 degrees on his his axis but in having these kind of these glimmers of human connection with with each of them in different ways and you know at different pitches i suppose he doesn't come out of it transformed but he comes out of it changed in some way does mm-hmm. that seem does that seem fair yeah that makes sense to me and i i think that the protagonist wants to share in his desire for another world Mm. and that each of these characters makes that possible in their own way and that um i think that so much of the work of something like decolonization sort of the remaking of the world uh, so that it doesn't inhibit indigenous flourishing um is precisely that uh, 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 desire to 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 live differently and mm. um, and and for another world, and in in asking others, both indigenous and non-indigenous, to to create spaces where we don't have to defend that desire, but it is mm. it is always already in the air so to speak yeah yeah and and it, it seems in a way as well at least for for our protagonist that there's some sort of sense of liberation in i guess learning to to not necessarily learning to speak but learning to tune in to the different languages that each of the people he converses with uh are speaking so at the, at the start when we meet him as i said earlier he he's very at home in this kind of academic discourse and which gives him a certain means of expression but with each of the people that he meets who speak in you know very different ways and from very different perspectives it it, it he seems to in some way modulate his language and tune mm-hmm. in to each of their discourses and that seems to in some way enrich his uh his emotional experience and his possibility for connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 hard realization that I think the protagonist makes, and that I had to make also by extension, sure. <laughs> is is that you know it, 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 the the total commitment to this certain strain of language of, of a critical language enticed him to turn away from his community mm. and. And in so doing, to understand them less, and and so mm. to 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 want to understand them better, he has also to take on their language, which I think also to take on someone else's language is an an incredibly uh, a beautiful and you know ethically transformative thing. Mm-hmm. Um. 
Where I'd like to finish, uh, in a way, it's coming full circle back to uh, what we were talking about at the beginning. This sort of this tension between academic writing and um, and novel writing, and I'm just curious to know. And this is not something which which features in the book. And maybe, given your own biography, is sort of almost notable by its ac- absence is the question of poetry as mm. a form for uh, accessing a certain means of expression or for performing or enacting certain um, certain things. Um, could you talk a little bit about, was it, was it a very conscious decision to exclude the question of poetry from, from this novel and just to keep the tension between, you know, novel writing and, uh, and academic discourse? Or is in some way the poetry something aside for you that's not particularly relevant to this, to this conversation? I think in deciding to make the protagonist an aspiring novelist, I had to foreclose my own interest in poetry mm-hmm. to make mm. the protagonist's desires as legible as possible. Though I think I still smuggled poetry <laughs> in, into the book. And there's this sort of technical way I do that with these chapters called interludes. Um, uh-huh. You know, because I am a poet at heart, and I think I'm a poet before I'm anything else, and so I couldn't mm-hmm. couldn't suppress that entirely in myself. And and I I do think that you know poetry is the the language of those who have been uh, forgotten about in mm. the larger narrative of history, and. So I I had to make use of some of the techniques of poetry and if I was interested in minor lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting. Uh, I was thinking back to an interview years ago with with Ben Lerner, who, of course, started out as a poet and went on to to write novels, continue writing poetry. And he said at the time that um, that in the the poet, poet, poetry community you're allowed one novel but if you write a second novel then you're kind of out of the club uh, <laughs> yeah yeah no you're out of the poetry club you're a novelist from now on who dabbles in poetry um so a slightly insolent question but do you uh do you have more novels planned are you uh concentrating on your poetry at the moment or or are you taking a different turn completely well i wrote some short stories and you know those will be published in a couple of years, I think. Mm-hmm. But I, I have more more deliberately turned my attention back to poetry. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Well, look, Billy Belcott, thank you so much for joining us today. A Minor Chorus is, of course, available from Shakespeare and Company. Uh, you can get it from our bricks and mortar store. You can get it from uh, our online store. It's also available um, from your local neighborhood independent bookstore, uh, wherever you may be based. Uh, all that's left for me to say is... Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>